1: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Kate Kirkpatrick, a lecturer in religion, philosophy, and culture at King's College London, and author of Becoming Bouvard, a life published by Bloomsbury Academic. Kirkpatrick has given us a biography that addresses the puzzle and contradictions of the life of philosopher Simone de Bouvard, drawn from a never before published diaries and letters to tell the fascinating story how choices shaped her life. Houvre, a writer and a feminist icon, won prestigious literary prizes and scandalized many with her now classic, The Second Sex. She's now being, being celebrated, but during her life, she was a controversial figure, both by conventional and feminist standards. As one who chose to write about lived ideas, both in fiction and essays, rather than build philosophical systems, she was easily dismissed as Jean- Jean-Paul Sartre's overly- loyal sidekick, Kirkpatrick shows how Bavard's thinking evolved as a feminist philosopher, a label she was reluctant to embrace. The author re-examines the overemphasis on Bavar's atheism, the extent of her, public, her political engagement, and her ethical failures in regard to third parties in the Sartre-Bavar relational triads. Beginning with her childhood to her adoption of Selvi-Lebonne, Kirkpatrick focuses on the significant relationships in Beauvoir's life to expand our understanding of how they shaped her thinking about the nature of subjectivity. Becoming Beauvoir demonstrates how the choices we make shape who we become. Here is my conversation with Kate Kirkpatrick. Let me introduce you to the author,
2: Kate Kirkpatrick. Hello, Kate.
3: Hello, thank you for having me.
2: Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts. Before we get into the book and a fascinating study, uh, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Becoming Bilbois.
3: Well, um, my background in philosophy goes back quite a way. Uh, I originally studied philosophy and theology at Oxford as an undergraduate, and then I went on to write my doctorate on the philosophy, the early philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre, and, uh, since then I've published, uh, two books on folk philosophy and, uh, co-authored a book on the influence of, um, the philosophy of mystic- mysticism on existentialism in the, in the French context. And so my interests in, uh, Beauvoir actually come from an interest in this period, um, in French philosophy and in the, the role of, philosophy and theology and literature in shaping public discourse. Um, okay, let me ask you a
2: question about this uh, Simadhu Vavar book. A lot has been written about her, and recently she's kind of experiencing a revival. Yes. So can, can, you, can you tell me, and I know you've been asked this question, and I think you've addressed it in other public forums, uh, why another book about Simadhu Vavar, especially another biography?
3: Well, uh, because I think that although there's a lot of excellent scholarship about Beauvoir um, by philosophers and people working in um, feminist theory and French literature, uh, the public reputation of Beauvoir is still, I think, um, pretty caricatured as either uh, the famous feminist who wrote The Second Sex or Sartre's famous girlfriend, to put it bluntly, um, and there's, there's much more to her than that. And in French, in 2000, 2008, her student diaries were published covering the years from 1926 to 1930. And other those these are partly now available in English, uh, reading them in the context of the philosophical applications of the time led me to approach Bill Boyd's philosophy differently and consequently to approach her relationships and her feminism all in a
2: slightly different way. Now, can you, if for our audience who's not familiar with De Beauvoir, can you please uh, tell us who she was and why she's significant and why we should bother with her now?
3: Okay, well, that's really, really its a huge question. So, I mean, it, so she's significant um, in that she was a historically pioneering woman. She was born in 1908. Uh, she was one of the youngest people ever to pass the agrégation exam, which is one of the most competitive uh, exams in French philosophy. She went on to teach philosophy uh, for ten years, and then she turned to writing um, literature as well as philosophical essays, political essays um, in in the nineteen forties. Uh, but she shot to fame in the same era as the person with whom she did have a lifelong relationship, John Paul Sartre, and so a lot of her own originality, I think, um, and her own philosophical contributions to existentialism, which is one of the most famous 20th century philosophical movements, have been, um, I think, occluded by, um, by certain details about her personal life. So, so yes, she went on to be a prize-winning novelist, Uh, She did the second sex, and she turned to feminist activism and campaigning in different ways at different points in her career. Um, She was also an anti-colonial activist who was very, very opposed to the French presence in Algeria. And so I think her life is um, a description of uh, a kind of fascinating presence to a lot of interesting times in 20th century history.
2: Well, uh, can you tell us a little bit about her background, the time that she grew up in, you know, her early life, her family? Can you talk about that and a, bit, a little bit about her, her relationship with her parents?
3: Yes. So one of the reasons that I think biography is such an interesting way to approach de Beauvoir is that her own philosophy um, was developed in conversational psychoanalysis and, uh, and in conversations with Christians about whether we're free uh, to become who we want to be or determined by our past, or certain features of our bodies. And so her own childhood played a significant role in the person that she became. And uh, her parents uh, were originally from quite wealthy French platforms. Uh, but, but they were living through a period in history where uh, the, the, it was up with the First World War. Uh, there were a lot of financial losses, uh, as a consequence of the war to, to her family in particular. And it was a period when women, would have, women of her social they would have been expected to marry off with large salaries to suitable men, uh, who were, who got the approval of the parents. But because her parents, uh, lost so much of their fortune, she was in a situation of needing to get an education and needing to be employed uh, when that was was not quite comfortable for women of her her background to do. So I think that's one relevant feature of her experience. Another is that uh, her parents were divided on questions of religion. So her mother was a devout Catholic woman. and that devotion became i think more fierce as they lost the family lost prestige um and so on the one hand, there's this intense religiosity on her mother's side, but her father was a kind of sarcastic uh secular man, so in France, there's a long tradition of uh like what they call laicite, which is a like certain the, the, the French secularism and so she attributed this kind of disagreement from the family household as being one of the reasons that she became intellectual.
2: It was kind of fortunate that her her parents were had lost their uh, financial uh, position because it kind of it forced uh, her to get an education in a way, even though yes. she was, she was very interested in that. but if her parents had remained very affluent, and uh, uh, retained you know, retain their full status in their class, she probably would have not had that opportunity, or they would have not relented, at least.
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things that I have found so interesting in writing a biography is just that it, it shows you, there's so much for how much contingency there is to a human life. So if your family hadn't lost their fortune when they did, or uh, even if she had been born, uh Five years earlier, French legislation would have been different about the the possibility of being educated in the way that she was. Um, So, yes, it is is fortunate for posterity that she was born when she was, and these particular kinds of events took place.
2: Now, she... uh she's known, she went against she went against convention of, of for women of her time and, uh, and you pr- talk you really put a lot of emphasis on, on life choices and how choice and, sh- and she did too how the choices you make really shape who you become and she made a series of decisions that really kind of went against her parents uh, and she's also portrayed in in you know most uh, scholarship or uh, writings about her that she rejected um, religion, marriage, children, or even to some would have said that she rejected her own body as a woman. But I think one of the points you're trying to make in your book is that all, all those things, particularly her her rejection of religion, which I was really zooming in on because you put you're the first person that I've seen actually pay attention to that. But it it was more nuanced than just an outright rejection or just plain atheism, you talk about how it was a process and it was more nuanced and it was never a complete break. Can you, can you talk about that?
3: Yeah, I'd be very happy to do that. Um, So one of the reasons that I'm so interested in this period of French philosophy is that um, I think that we find a much more theologically informed and nuanced Kind of atheism in the discussions of these existentialists. Um, so, in my work on um, Sartre, I have um, looked at French philosophers who informed his concept of freedom and his understanding of what it means to be a self in time. And one of the things that actually made me suspicious enough to start doing the research for this biography of Dwork is that she was reading similar uh, theological thinkers. Before, uh, before she, years before she met Sarge, and she was asking herself the same kinds of questions about what it means um, for a person to have value, or if anyone could have value after the death of God. So, um, in the interwar period, France was having uh, a new wave of reception of Nietzsche and its first wave of reception of Kierkegaard, and so these existentialists. Uh, or proto existentialist depending on how you uh define the term, uh, were coming into French thought, but they weren't received as um they weren't received as completely foreign thinkers because both Kierkegaard and Nietzsche uh, were key readers of Pascal and the, the French philosophical context um was, was kind of actually quite lively at that moment in debate over whether the soul of France was a rational soul uh, that you could trace back to Descartes' rationalism, or whether it was a mystical soul uh, that you could trace back to Pascal. And so in both student diaries, you see her quoting uh, from these figures and and talking about um, what to do if there is no God with the kinds of insatiable desire that religion used to promise to satisfy. So, uh, if, you know, you can satisfy your desires for food or sex, at least theoretically, um, but if there is no God to satisfy the spiritual craving for meaning or justice, um, then what do we do? And so I think like, that's a question that stayed with her for her life, and it shaped her contributions to both philosophy and feminism. And so I wanted to highlight it. Well,
2: I I found that your comments on religion really got me thinking and and trying to find, I'm trying to make some connections with her, too. So she, now she believed that philosophy could not be separated from life. And that's one of the reasons I think, you know, and you, you make the point, it took so long for her to be really recognized as a philosopher. And she carried this idea of philosophy and life sort of being kind of intertwined Uh, in her writing when she was writing novels, because we don't think of novels generally, most people don't think of novels as being a vehicle for philosophy uh, in terms of it doesn't really build this very formal system of arguments. So can you talk a little bit about uh, why she felt that way and 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 then, at the same time, she didn't really feel she was much of a philosopher herself. she saw herself as a writer uh, this This is very interesting to me because what is philosophy you know, and what does it mean to be a philosopher
3: Yes you comment on that yeah I mean it's such a great question and I think you know the the question of the relationship between literature and philosophy or um what Plato and Aristotle referred to as poetry and philosophy is a long and vexed one. Um, so Plato said that he uh, thought that poets should be banned from the republic because they name the thought of those who hear them. Um, and uh, but there's a kind of irony to Plato's statement uh, because he himself used a literary form to express philosophy as a dialogical enterprise, and um, so I think one of the things that has motivated me to uh, today is these kinds of questions in the book is that I think the relationship between literature and philosophy varies not just across time but across cultures, and in France the relationship is rather different than it is in uh, 20th century or 21st century Anglo-American philosophy. Um, so in france there's a history of people using satire uh, so if you think about Voltaire for example the, the french uh in the, the the French period of the, the, the yes. you know the enlightenment there's this literary forms of writing philosophy have a much uh longer and quite prestigious um history so um one of the things that makes asking this question of both are complicated is that we're happy to acknowledge um, that literary forms of writing philosophy count as philosophy in the case of some uh, some men in history, so Kierkegaard, for example, um, or uh, Nietzsche, or Pascal, if, if they're aphorisms and essays. Uh, but in Beauvoir's case, it seemed to me that even her, autobiograph- her autobiographical writings could be considered philosophical autobiography in the tradition of Rousseau or even Augustine's Confessions, uh, but they they haven't. Um, so, or <laughs> well, at least they haven't on a widespread basis. Um, so it's very difficult to say that sexism is definitely the reason that this is the case, because the relationship between literature and philosophy and different cultures is also operative here. Um, but I think one of the reasons I found her work so fascinating is because she decided that it was uh, it it wasn't really the most powerful way to speak to the people that she needed to speak to to write in the forms of academic philosophy um so you know using the power of literature and autobiography, her work reached um, everyday women in France and eventually around the globe in ways um, that you know, arguments in, in, in a philosophical style really do.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Now, uh, you know, she, her, her theme that I just see in her, uh, all her work is the idea of subjectivity. Yes. Uh, and in her, and we look at her fictions, her novels, her memoirs, her essays, and then we look at the letters uh from uh, from women who wrote to her, the letters she wrote to Sart Sart and all the people that she was in, entangled with. Um part of the difficulty of understanding Bavar is so much of this stuff it seems contradictory. And we don't know if they're contradictory because life is messy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and life is complicated and that and our lives are full of contradictions or whether it was done on purpose. Uh whether she was uh trying to complicate or maybe she was hiding what do you, what what's your feeling on that uh the fact that all her
3: work is seems at times the more we know about her the is that the less we know so i think um that's a really good question and i suppose it, it raises the question like when when can we claim to know another person um and as a biographer, I wouldn't claim to know who she was. I mean, I say in the introduction that I, I'm not claiming to to give people the real Beauvoir because I don't think um it's possible to achieve a God's eye point of view. Um and so I think uh I would hesitate to say that she's contradictory because I think that um there are times in her life when her values clearly change and her philosophical commitments clearly change. And I think she tries to live with integrity to those philosophical commitments at the time. Um, and she doesn't always succeed. But that seems to me very human um, to right. have a, Yeah. <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, I think that's
2: right. Uh, I, can't, I think we're, we're looking sometimes for a unity, uh, a wholeness in a person's life through all their work that really is not possible uh especially the way she how she wrote and the way she wrote you know with novels and memoirs and all that it's very it's very difficult to try to come up with a singular all-encompassing like system that she lived by consistently cuz none of none of us can do that so let me ask you about how uh how does she been how has she been um, underestimated and how does she come to be how does she become to represent both feminism's best impulses? I mean, the best of feminism and also uh the the worst parts of it too. Uh she's I mean she's not even she's not even a hero for all feminist thinkers and uh some of them don't like her. Yep. <laughs> you know, and at, at times uh, how does she and at times she actually does it uh, does things that seem very traditional. You know, that you would expect a traditional woman to do. Um uh, can you talk about how this this is this is the problem with who are? It's very difficult to to cast her in one way or another. Can you, you want to comment on that?
3: Yes, I mean I think one of the things that I um find really interesting uh about how divisive a figure she is is that um it I wonder why or what people think we need out of somebody who's a feminist figurehead. Um do we need a someone who's perfect, someone who conforms to exactly our ideas? So do we need someone who challenges us and sometimes challenges us by making us very uncomfortable in order to discover what our own ideas are? Now, I think Wilbur never claimed to be an example to women. She did not want to set herself up in this way. Um, And there are several places where she says that this is the case. and And she also says that it's a frustrating dimension of having a private life Um, that people then think you have to live up up to, not only uh, your own ideals, sorry, I should should have said it's a frustrating dimension of having a public life, Um, not only to have to live up to your own ideals, but then to have other people condemn you for not living up to theirs. (laughs) And um, so I think, in terms of Goldberg's legacy, there's uh, there are a lot of factors that contribute to how contested it is. I think one of the factors is that the translation, the first English translation of the second sex, was so poor. I and mean, there's a lot of research that's been done on this by Tom Moore and Margaret Simons, um, among others. And we know now that it was translated without the philosophical rigor of the French, and only about eighty-five percent of it made into English, and a lot of women's voices were cut. Um, so. Problematically, uh, what that meant is that it, over half a century, the English-speaking world was reading that book without actually reading <laughs> uh, a lot of Beauvoir's words. And one of the things that I find very interesting to think with is that Simone de never uses the word gender in the second sex. Um, it's just, it's not there. Um, she talks about things like Les Bormé-phiologiques, the biological givens. Uh, she talks about this uh, physiology, the physiological structures of existence. Um, at, but because the the English translation of um the book was was discareless philosophically, um, a whole half centuries worth of scholarship uh, got started with uh, which really I think didn't have the conceptual apparatus. Yeah, the the
2: the English, the English translation, it has had incredible amount of influence in America, yeah. and uh, if, if you just read that and don't read, you've got to read the, a lot of her other work, and you also probably need to read the, the uh, second sex in the French, yeah. the original French. Uh, so let me let's talk about the the big elephant in the room, which is the her relation with Sartre. How did John, John, How did she meet him, John Bond saw What is what, what, there's, they had a very a lifelong relationship, and why did he become so important in her life? And what was their famous pact?
3: So yes, so the famous pact um, has become the stuff of legend uh, in France and around the world because in 1929, those got a beautiful backdrop. They were sitting outside um, the Louvre. And in Paris, and basically having a defining the relationship conversation, and they said that they would be necessary to each other, but that they, it was okay to have contingent lovers on the side. Um, so it, it's, um, it was going to be a kind of open relationship, but an open relationship in which they were primary in each other's lives. And um, so... It's the story of the relationship that appears in the student diaries is, um, is actually, I think, very interestingly different from the narrative that she constructs in the memoirs, and which then became famous, because we see that in the student diaries, she's already uh, committed to the idea that it's possible to love more than one person. Uh, at the same time. So a lot of feminist readers had assumed that she was Sartre's victim in this act, and that he was basically proposing um, to uh, to do outside of marriage what many men at the time did inside of marriage um, by demanding her fidelity and uh, taking advantage of his own infidelity. But in the diaries, you see things from her point of view before she even weeks uh, And um, it's quite funny in places because she didn't like him immediately. <laughs> she is much more interested in someone else. Um but it's also interesting because after they do form this intense intellectual friendship, uh, she quite quickly says in her diaries that he's first in her life only in one sense. And she says and I quote in the book, um, that he is first uh, not in her body or her heart, because there are many others could uh, be, but that he is the uncomfortable friend of her heart. So that's a quote from her own words. And I think what she found in Sarge is, I, I sometimes find um, it difficult to decide whether it's really moving or tragic or both. Uh, there's someone who really criticized her for thinking philosophically. So her cousin, who she was romantically interested in, didn't like it when she spoke like an intellectual. Um, a lot of the other men in her life didn't like it when she talked about philosophy. But Sartre wanted to know what she thought about Leibniz, and Sartre wanted to talk with her about writing novels and the kinds of questions about philosophy and literature that preoccupied them both before they met each other. Um, so yes,
2: would you describe? Would you describe a? What, I, what I, I gather from reading about her and reading your book also is that her relationship with Sartre was actually ultimately a platonic relationship in the, in the full sense of platonic, okay, uh, sense of the word. Would you, would you say that was true or not?
3: So um, not at all stages of the relationship. Yeah, so I think that initially she thought that she was going to find someone that she could have a kind of hard traditional romantic relationship with, as well as this intellectually fulfilling one, Uh, but it became clear quite quickly um, that that wasn't going to work with Sarge. He did not appreciate her emotions. He didn't have the same theory of what literature could do that she did. Um, And uh, he was very, very... um, Negative about the body and the female body in particular, and so <laughs> she, um, I think, went in with hopes that quickly had to be adjusted uh, in light of his own philosophical commitments and behavior. Ultimately,
2: so c- can we really disentangle her from John Paul Sartre because? She, throughout her life, she really, uh, she had opportunities to leave him and to really make a break and stand on her own in terms of intellectually, stand on her own emotionally and socially, but she never did. Uh, Can we ever really disentangle those two people? No, I don't
3: think we can. And I don't think it would be consistent with her philosophy to do so either, because Whatever else Sartre was, um, he was someone whose conversation and um, criticism she appreciated for her entire life. They read each other's manuscripts, um, they uh, they argued with each other intensely, um, and some of those arguments ended up shaping, you know, 20th century philosophy in really interesting ways. Um, so I don't think it would be consistent with the historical record uh, to, to try to separate them. But I also don't think that it would be consistent with her own philosophy because she she says that becoming a self um, is something that we do with other people. So our, uh, our freedoms are um, constrained in crucial ways by the people that we go through life with. But they're also liberated um, because the people that we go through life up with open up different possibilities to us. And I know it's a it's not it doesn't always make feminists comfortable um, that she um, quote unquote didn't leave him. But if you read things like uh, Nelson Algren's letters from the, ni- the late 1940s, so less than 20 years after the, the relationship began, he refers to the, them as having separated. So romantically, they were separated, but they remained friends and critics. Um, and part of each other's daily lives for a long time afterwards.
2: Now she, uh, you just brought something up that uh, in terms of relationships that she, uh, she struggled uh, philosophically or existentially to, uh, the, uh, to, to clarify or to figure out this uh, 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 tension between devotion to others, love and retaining her freedom. Yeah. this, I want to be free, but I know that I can't really fully be free without, a, I've got to have other people. But if I'm too devoted to other people, then I lose my freedom. So there's this tension between, I guess, freedom and duty or love, the, the duty of love, the loyalty. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yes. Yeah, so this is one of the things that I think is so interesting. Um, it's a thread that you can trace from, Uh, The 19-year-old Simone de Beauvoir to uh, the Beauvoir that's writing in 1970, um, you know, when she's in her 60s. Um, So in in her student diaries, she's already asking the question, what does it mean to love ethically? Because she's seen in her life uh, that love doesn't seem to be something that men and women are expected to do in the same way. Uh, she saw a lot more self negation and self sacrifice in uh the lives of women and a lot more self centeredness frankly um and in the just the the family members uh, that that she uh had and it, but also in the literature that she read so ideas of love uh were were not proportionate and already in the student diaries she says that what's needed is a love that isn't too centered on the self. Um, but also that isn't too centered on the other, because if you get excessive self-sacrifice, that's problematic. And if you get excessive self-centeredness, that's problematic too. So she talks about the right balance as equilibrium or reciprocity, and uh, she returns to these two poles of either excessive or um, inadequate uh, love or defective love. Um, in, in later works. So I think you see her discussing terms like devotion in um, the ethical text from the 1940s. It comes up in the second sex. And uh, but what she says, because of her understanding of what it means to be a self in time, is that equilibrium is not something that you achieve once and for all. Um, if you are in the situation of being in a loving relationship with a friend or partner who also wants your relationship to be ethical both of you have to struggle to to keep the equilibrium uh, that shows commitment to the other but respects that the other person is a process of uh, is in the process of becoming and that they are changing in time just like you are so love is a commitment that has to be remade over and over again in life if you want it to remain ethical
2: well, she, uh, her, her pact with Sartre and their relationship impacted all other relationships that she was had, and she had multiple relationships. One notably, of course, with Nelson Algren, but there were others. And uh can you tell how did the how did uh, that relationship she had with Sartre, which actually was probably end up being her primary relationship throughout life in her life, affect the? Uh, her commitment to others. Well, I, I, and did she struggle with that. Did she struggle with that or not?
3: Maybe I, she didn't. I think she did in some ways, but I, I still think that this is uh, a way in which the relationship relationship had been misunderstood. So when she says to Algren that she won't move to America, he says uh, to her, that he doesn't want to move to France. And so they're at this impasse because they, they both, um, uh, They both love each other, but neither of them is willing to leave their home country. And a lot of people will have assumed that this is just because she doesn't want to leave Sarge. Um, But what she says is that she can't leave the place, the only place where her work could have a meaning. And I think if you read Beauvoir in French and you see the way that she's alluding to French literature without necessarily even telling you that she's doing it, um, the way that she uses wit and she takes famous sentences um, from from well-known French texts and subverts them. Uh, I think shows that she saw herself as very much committed to uh, her context. I mean, she she one of the most important concepts in her philosophy is the, the concept of situation, and she thought that her situation needed to be in France primarily. So I think um, her her relationship with Sartre did play. Um, a role in in some of the kinds of, uh, well, in all of the relationships she had, uh, it, it has to be admitted. Um, but I don't think that that should be the only thing that's taken into consideration and it, when, when we look at um, why she made some of the choices she did.
2: Okay. Now let's talk about her relationship with women, mm-hmm. <laughs> which becomes really complicated yeah. uh, because uh, she... Uh, claimed that she was not a lesbian but she had had she had same sex encounters and was not uh you know particularly uh she didn't see it as problematic but you know of course uh, a feminist after her you know would you know say she was you know acting in bad faith because she would never really embrace lesbianism and So what was her relationship with women? And there were also triangles between her women and Sartre that got very complicated and ethically messy. So can you talk about this? She fell other women. Was she a cavalier towards other women?
3: At certain points in her life. Yes. And I think um, that would have been her assessment, um, in certain cases, we have documents that show it is her assessment that, that that significant failures have had very negative impacts on the lives of others, and so um, I think. But this this is another case where I think um, her views changed over time, and she uh, those relationships, the relationships the famous trios uh, that have often been glamorized and used to distract people from Beauvoir's ideas that happened before she went on to develop her views of ethics and before she wrote The Second Sex and before she became a feminist activist. And I I think there are a lot of transformations in her uh, relationships with women, um, both at the kind of particular level, but also at the, the, the more general level of how she decides to engage with. Um, challenges to women in society.
2: So that gets us to, so was she a lesbian?
3: That's the no. question. No? no, she didn't. She, she believed that homosexuality was a choice. So I think we have to acknowledge right. that she's, she occupies a very different, uh, historical yes. context and existentialism in general, uh, doesn't really believe it denies the metaphysical possibility of a lot of identity claims um, right. So philosophically, the question for her, yes. you know, <laughs> um, I think, is a strange one to ask. Yeah, I, I got
2: it. <laughs> yeah, I got it. So now she comes. She comes along as she writes the second sex, because really, she kind of starts off as most of her work is involved with her own personal sort of questions she's asking herself. She didn't set out to like, I'm going to write a feminist theory that's going to change the course of feminist theory or or establish feminist theory, you know, for the world. That was not her intent. What was her intent?
3: So there are a couple of places where she expresses it um, in different ways. So one is that um, she had been very impressed by uh, Michel Leris' book, uh, Manhood, um, which is called French, and uh, she thought it would be interesting to see a similar book rip- written about women. Um, another example or another account that we have of the motivations for the book from her letters to Nelson Algren is that she um, had read the very influential text by Gunnar Mordahl, um called The American Dilemma, which was about um, the situation of Black people in America and which was published in the 1940s. So, so she had read um, An American Dilemma by Gunnar Myrdal, and the uh, Myrdal in that text uh, talks about uh, the principle of accumulation, and and it being different from a vicious cycle because you have a kind of accumulation of um, lack of opportunity, which makes it look like lack of ability. And Beauvoir said that she wanted to write a book that was like this book, but for women. Uh, so, so she was inspired by um, contemporary texts, and she was inspired by also debates that were happening in French philosophy in the 1940s, because both Sartre and Merleau-Ponty, uh, both of whom were her friends, um, wrote philosophies of the body, which was pretty. Um, revolutionary in Western philosophy. So in Being and Nothingness, there's a large section dedicated to the body. In 1943, in Méloponti's Phenomenology of Perception, there's a lot about embodied consciousness. And she was part of the conversations that led to the publication of both of those books. And she thought that there were problematic um, dimensions of them because they took the male body to be the norm of embodied experience. And questions of phenomenology like time and space and she thought it might be the case, uh, at least on one reading, uh, that these structures uh, were different if you were in a female body.
2: Okay, so how was, how was the second sex re- uh, received in France?
3: So it was received with shock and disdain and uh, a lot of shaming tactics from the literary establishment. Um, Prior to that time, she'd written philosophical essays. She'd written some very well-received novels and a play and co-founded an influential journal with the French. But when that came out, um, Kennedy accused her of making the French male look ridiculous and other people said much more intimate and insulting things. (laughs) Um, And I I think one of the reasons I found writing a biography of her life so interesting is because it became very clear to me that one of the recurring criticisms of Simone de Beauvoir was that she thought feminism was still relevant. Uh, So in 1944, women won the right to vote, which they first exercised in France in 1945. And so just four years after uh, first voting, she was accused of being passe um, and of harping harping on about problems that had already been solved. uh, but she was read by people in positions of less power as talking about things that had never been spoken about frankly before um, and opening up new possibilities for her life. So it's really interesting to see how the kind of public furore is accompanied by um, just a, a really much warmer reception uh, in private.
2: Now, uh, in regard to her relationship with feminism, I think it's really important to clarify that when she talks about in The Second Sex that feminism is practically over, she's talking about the political uh, movement to for, women, for rich women to get the vote. And she really kind of distanced herself from the feminism before, I would say, you know, 19, before the war. And she uh, doesn't really embrace feminism as a political, with a political agenda till late in life. Would you not say that? And what causes her to change her mind and decide that she'd always been working on behalf of the female sex in terms of her writing and trying to explore that. She was doing it as a philosopher. She was doing it at the level of culture. But for most of her life, she wasn't really involved in like feminist activism till later. Uh, can, you, can you talk about
3: that? Yes. Yes. So th- I think there's a transformation in her her commitments in the 1950s, um, which is getting more attention in the scholarship now. And uh, so she ag- acknowledges when she reflects back on her past later in life that in the 1940s, she was very elitist. She did not conceive of the second sex as a activist text. She thought it was a theoretical work of philosophy. and Um, She was surprised, you know, it was taken up in that way. Um, But it opened up new possibilities for her um, in the world. And so one of the things that I think is is really interesting is that after the Second Sex, women wrote to her and they said, why did you write this book in this alienating language of the intellectual elite? Um, Why did you make it a thousand pages? This is too important only to be read by people who have Uh, Doctorates in philosophy. And so there's this kind of outpouring of uh, appreciation for the book, but also the sentiment that it's a missed opportunity to reach the people who need it most. And in the 1950s, there's an essay that she wrote on privilege, where she says that intellectuals are often guilty, uh, even when they identify with the politics of the left in France, of keeping their privilege, their cultural privilege to themselves and only writing for their peers instead of um, engaging with people where these ideas could have really transformative effects on their lives. So uh, that is something that she writes just before she starts writing her memoirs. And in the French publicity information for the memoirs, she says that she's not writing a straight autobiography, uh, but that she's trying to write the theory of second sex and apply it to her own life. So it's true that she's, um, she's still using um, culture as a way of uh, <laughs> fighting sexist ideals, and perhaps this still seems elitist, um, but the readership of her letters changes dramatically at that point, and people start to ask her, because they say that she'd come down from a pedestal, um, and that they, you know, they'd never imagined her hungry or poor before, or they never thought that they could actually be like her. But the portrait that she painted Uh, was so identifiable um, that she started to get a very different kind of following. And so it's after that point that she starts to get invitations to participate in different kinds of um, uh, political campaigns and and also significantly after her activism for uh, anti-colonization. So um, in the late 1950s, uh, when France was in turmoil about its relationship with Algeria, um, I think Bouguer got a very different kind of social conscience, and then in the sixties and seventies, you see her engaged in feminist politics and legislation much more.
2: So, with all that has been written about Simone de Beauvoir, do you believe that her influence, the full the full story of her influence has been yet has been told?
3: I think that's a dangerous question to say yes to, um, because. What, the philosophers of, uh, of her stature, I think they continue to be read by different generations in different ways because the situations of readers change and that, that therefore um, the readings change when ideas stand the test of time. And I think her ideas, some of them at least, will stand the test of time and that I have certainly not said or written the last word. So
2: what is, what's her legacy? What do you want the reader to take away from your book?
3: So I, I suppose I'm not really temperamentally inclined to to want people to take one thing away, um, but I my hope is to show that uh, that her story is both uh, more inspiring and more complex um, than we thought, but perhaps for different reasons. So these to raise these questions about um, about concepts like love well, and Uh, why it is that a friendship between a man and a woman arouses so much suspicion, uh, or so much, uh, um, I guess, well, yeah, suspicion is a good word. I mean, this this relationship has been reduced to a conventional erotic plot, um, uh, or at least an unconventional erotic plot, when the kind of love that was involved, I don't think um, was as traditional as people have thought.
2: Okay, well, thank you, Kate. Thank you for this time. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.